We're going to do just one point of a message this morning, but I want to do it. And I'm going to be in John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We started last week a a series that we're going to work through the summer with, and it's uh, about being desperate for God. We're going to look at different individuals who are desperate for God and what God did as as a result of their desperation, causing them to lean upon Him and have faith in Him. And this morning, uh, we're going to look at the man Nicodemus. Nicodemus. But why don't we uh, begin with a word of prayer. Father, we bow before You. Thank You for all of us that are within hearing range of Your Word. Um, We recognize that You're the one who's in charge, that Your Word is what's significant and important. Uh, Father, give us the ability to filter out things that aren't according to Your truth, Uh, regardless of who they come from, whether by accident or on purpose. And we ask that you would use um, Nicodemus and his desperation to speak to hearts this morning. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. A theme verse that we're looking at is from Psalm 18. Uh, I'll have it up on the screen next week so we can begin to say it. And maybe by the end of this we'll have that memorized even without trying to so we can meditate on it. Psalm 18 verse 6 says this, In my distress... I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry came before him even to his ears. That was David. It was right after Saul and all of David's enemies were seeking to kill his life, uh, take his life, kill him. And he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard him. He was desperate for God at that particular situation. And I'm guessing that all of us in different situations in life have had a different level of desperation as well. And I'm hoping that some of the biblical characters that we look at can encourage us to have the faith that they had. Not follow them, follow the faith that they had and placed in the Lord. Last week we considered a very unique individual in Israel's life and history, and that was Rahab the harlot. Rahab the harlot. She was from Jericho. She was not an Israelite. Um, You know the story, or you can listen to it from last week. She helped two spies that Joshua had sent to spy out the land. Uh, Actually, she saved their lives. In return, her life and the life of her family was spared. And we we can even find her in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 5. She was in a desperate situation that only God could have unraveled. Uh, She wasn't an Israelite, but she believed and feared God, and God worked on her behalf. Rahab, everywhere except for Matthew 5, when she's spoken of, is referred to as Rahab the harlot. A harlot. Someone might be tempted to think, what an undeserving person. And I have a question for all of us, who of us would be deserving? And uh, none of us would be. This morning, though, what I want us to do is look at an individual that is Rahab's complete opposite. Um, This man was intensely moral, extremely religious, devoted to what he believed. He He wasn't right, but he was exceptionally devoted. He was too tied up in the law, but God got a hold of his heart, um, which is seen in his life pursuits uh, that he was devoted, uh, seen in his life pursuits and the responsibilities that he bore. Nicodemus is his name. He's the one we'll consider this morning. We won't do all of these this morning. We don't have time. We encounter him three times in the New Testament. This three times in the New Testament. All of them are in John's Gospel. John chapter 3, John chapter 7, and John chapter 19. 
everything we know about Nicodemus we can find in the Gospel of John. Uh, well, this morning what we're going to do is just look at the first encounter and it's a message and will be fine all by itself. The first time that we encounter Nicodemus is John chapter 3 and it holds John chapter 3, the, probably the most um, famous Bible verse of all time, anywhere, all of the time and it's power packed but let's work up to that. John chapter 3 verse 1 says this, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of of the Jews. I want us to spend a little bit of time in verse 1 and the first half of verse 2 because it helps us understand something about this man Nicodemus. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This verse describes Nicodemus as a Pharisee. We know the Pharisees, I'm quoting, as a group of Jews who were particularly focused on keeping the letter of the law. They were religious, um, they were devout, um, even their additional law. So they had added to what Moses had given and were more focused on what they'd added to than they were the original intent as well. Because of this, they often opposed Jesus throughout his ministry. Ultimately, in Matthew 23, Jesus would denounce them because of their legalism. Nicodemus was a man of the Pharisees, uh, a ruler of the Jews. That's the second thing that we learn about him. It tells us that he was a ruler of the Jews. Chapter 7, verse 48, we won't make it there today, but chapter 7, verse 48 um, re, uh, reinforces this idea that he was uh, a ruler of the Jews. There, the Pharisees, especially the rulers, are, are saying to the crowd, verse 48, have any of the authorities or the rulers or the legal, the leaders or the officials, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him, referring to Jesus? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And so they belittled the people that they were speaking to rather than leading them spiritually. This crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before uh, at night, who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing? And so these rulers, the Pharisees, or, or the, the rulers of the Pharisees, the leaders, the officials of the Jews were a group of people known as the Sanhedrin, okay? The Sanhedrin. It was a group of 70 men. It wasn't a self-imposed position. It actually began with Moses and then continued throughout Israel's biblical history, even a little through the New Testament as well, a little bit after the New Testament, and then Rome ultimately undid the Jewish Sanhedrin because of their opposition to the Roman rule. A town, or a, a town that had a certain number of families, and the number was 120 at least, would have their own mini, if you will, Sanhedrin or lower court with the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem being the final court of appeals for matters regarding Jewish law and religion. Nicodemus and, uh, was part of this Sanhedrin group as one of the leaders of the Pharisees. Um, they were the final court of appeals because they were the, Jewish, the Jerusalem Sanhedrin. This was the body that ultimately condemned Jesus but needed Pilate's help to, to uh, sentence him to death. Nicodemus is said to be part of this ruling body, the great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. Jesus would even refer to him as the teacher of Israel. 
So part of Nicodemus's task within his Sanhedrin responsibilities was to instruct the people concerning God's Old Testament word. He might have been the prominent teacher in all of Israel. At least he was one of the very few among those 70s uh, uh, in the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus seemed to show when he came to Jesus uh, tenderness to the things of the Lord above the religious or beyond the religious leaders norm of their day. But when he started showing interest in Jesus as part of the great Sanhedrin, he would have had some real spiritual pressure because of the people that he rubbed shoulders with, the other 69 individuals that were the leaders among those Pharisees in the Sanhedrin. So it says in verse 2, So this man came to Jesus by night. He came by night, it seems obvious, to hide his visit from his contemporary Jewish leaders. He didn't want them knowing that he was giving an ear to this one who was doing the miracles and all of the works that he was doing. And so he came by night. And what was interesting when we find Rahab is we always find her, Rahab referred to as Rahab the harlot, Rahab the harlot, Rahab the harlot. Every time we see Nicodemus, we always see a reference to him coming by night or the one who came before or the one who came by night. Kind of interesting that scripture tags him with that. We'll find others within the Sanhedrin pressuring Nicodemus even more in John chapter 7. We'll look at that next week. Let's read our way through this first portion of John 3 because it's such a key passage when considering eternal life. And teenagers, y'all just stood up here and we led in worship and told about what the Lord um, showed us, some of the things that the Lord showed us while we were at Noah's Ark and the Creation Science Museum and at Potter's Ranch and the things that we did. But I want you to have ears to hear what he's saying here. He is saying this to one of the top 70 religious leaders in the nation. And if he's saying it to them, he would be saying it to us as well. And that goes for us as well, that there's a word in here if we have ears to hear. He came to Jesus by night. Let's read our way through. If you hear anything today, hear what Jesus says about eternal life. Because you're present at Lone Jack Baptist this morning at 1049 doesn't mean you have eternal life, all right? Nicodemus was a religious leader, one of the top 70 in the nation, and Jesus told him, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And so if we have uh, that need, let's have ears to hear. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus' tone was different than the condemning Pharisees who accused him. Jesus said in verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If we're not born again, we can't see, can't perceive, can't understand, can't discern the kingdom of God. You can read a Bible. Someone who's a born-again believer can read a Bible. The born-again believer, no matter what age, has the Spirit of God indwelling and has spiritual insights, things that are spiritually discerned. The one over here who doesn't have that spiritual insight can't discern the things of the Spirit of God. And so God has to open up their mind and draw their heart, and, and, and we have a response that we're going to do. Jesus said, I, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This begs the question, why is it necessary? What is the need for a man, a woman, a child? What's the need for all of us to be born again? And the answer is because the wages of sin is death. 
And our children, our children, our teenagers, they're not children, they're, 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 they're the kids that uh, uh, Carrie was referring to. Um, the teenagers are young adults, and they got to hear this several different times this week, uh, this uh, last couple of weeks. Um, the wages of sin is death, spiritual death and physical death. Our teenagers heard it at the Creation Science Museum, especially in the presentation of the temptation and the fall. Genesis 2.16 says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Why not? For in the day that you eat, you shall what? Surely die. And they did, and they did. And, and, And so we might think, Okay, they did, and they died, and they started dying physically, and God separated them from the relationship with him immediately so that they wouldn't eat from the, uh, a, an eternal tree. Um, the reason I've done so many funerals in the, in the years that I've been in the ministry is because of this. In the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And even if it's, a, if it's a funeral of someone who walked with the Lord, um, who had a testimony of knowing Jesus, the reason they're dead is because of this. And the reason we need to be born again is because death hovers over us because of our, because of our break in relationship with God. It began with Adam. Um, that's just the physical part. Spiritual death, separation from God also came. Um, The reason there's a need to be born again, what Jesus described as spiritual birth, is because our spiritual death, man's because of man's our spiritual death, man's spiritual separation from God. Every single person in this place, in this city, in our state, in our country, around our world, apart from Jesus, are separated from God. He is our only hope. He's the door. He's the light. He's the only one that opens the way that I can be redeemed and forgiven of my sin, or you as well. And it doesn't matter whether you believe it. It's going to be, it's just the truth, period. And one of these days, you're going to believe it. And I hope you believe it before it's too late. You might say, I wasn't in the garden. I didn't eat the forbidden tree from the forbidden tree. Look at the law of God. More than adequate, James told us. We just worked our way through the book of James. The law of God is more than adequate to show us that we are all lawbreakers. And we don't have to break a half a dozen. All we need to do is break one of them, James says. But likely, most of us break a half a dozen apart from Jesus. Jesus is saying to this cream of the crop Pharisee, one of the 70 most influential individuals in the nation, the teacher of Israel, unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Cannot see doesn't just mean you don't get to participate or go there or be in heaven when you die. You just don't even, you don't get that. You can't even see or understand what it's about. First Corinthians chapter, apart from the Spirit of God enlightening us and through the truth of the Word of God, which is alive. First Corinthians chapter 2 says this, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They can't. We're, spiritual things are spiritually discerned, and we have to have the help of the Spirit of God. Chapter 3, verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He's understanding only the physical, isn't he? Because he can't see the kingdom of God. He doesn't have that capacity. God has to open a person's eyes, and Jesus is in the process of helping Nicodemus have his eyes opened. 
Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I think that because water is used in this context with the verse before and the verse after, water is referring to um, physical birth. Some people have a little bit different opinion, but I think he's talking about physical birth and spiritual birth. Because then he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel, Nicodemus, ruler, teacher of the Jews. Do not marvel. Don't be surprised that I say to you, you must be born again. This religious elite, you must be born again. And if Nicodemus needed that, how much does Jerry need that? And if I need that, we all put our pants on the same way. We all need that. You must be born again. Every one of us, we must be born again. It's not a Baptist thing. It's a God thing. There must be a spiritual birth in order to see the kingdom of God. And that isn't just about I get to go to heaven when I die. It's about having eternal life now and having a confidence in it, not an arrogance because of it, having a confidence in it and living pleasing to the Lord now. There must be spiritual birth in order to see the kingdom of God. Verse 8 says this, The wind blows where it wishes, you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. One commentator writes, The Lord illustrated his point with a familiar example from nature. The wind itself cannot be observed, but the wind's effects can be observed. The same is true of the work of the Spirit His sovereign work of regeneration in the human heart can neither be controlled nor predicted, but yet its effects can be seen in a transformed life of those who have been born by the Spirit. You must be born again. And when you are, you're going to have the fruit of a relationship with the Lord. There's going to be love and peace and some of the things that the teenagers sang about today. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? It's almost like he's saying, what are you saying, Jesus? What does this mean? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? One of the the highest spiritual positions, and you're not getting this? Jesus is saying, this is so basic, so elementary, so essential to spiritual life, and you don't get it? Jesus adds to Nicodemus' desperation in a need for God. Nicodemus came to talk to Jesus at night just to find out who he was, what he was doing, and what a conversation it was that night. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, Jesus said, verse 11, bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony, speaking of them as a whole. If I've told you earthly things you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, referring to his death and how he would die on a cross. And then he says that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The requirement for eternal life isn't that I clean up my life and then do the very best that I can for God. The requirement for eternal life is genuinely having a biblical belief in Jesus and then I have eternal life and then God's spirit begins to work on the inside and the, and the end result is that my life gets cleaned up. There's a difference in that equation. One is Jesus and I clean up my life equals eternal life. The other is Jesus and believing in him equals eternal life and then he's going to clean up my life as a witness to the work that he's doing in my heart. That's what eternal life is. 
For God so loved the world, verse 16, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but whoever does to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Be careful to define believe as the way the Bible defines believe. And do you know what's interesting about this word? Every time we find it in verse 16, 17, and 18, it's a present, I believe and am continuing to believe in Jesus' belief. It isn't I believed back there where I prayed a prayer. It's I am believing today that Jesus is and that he has ownership rights on my life and I'm going to live for him. That's what a biblical belief is. There's a lot of unbiblical I believed out there. You be really careful. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. I'm going to fast forward Nicodemus had a desperate spiritual dilemma, and he responded, it appears, by faith. We don't have any solid declarations of Nicodemus's life. We'll look at one that appears that way, that he was, um, it's, it appears that he had a devotion, but it appears that he responded by faith. Um, that would be true of one that we'll be introduced to next week as well, Joseph of Arimathea, just like Rahab the harlot responded. Very different circumstances. One, this lady's a harlot, and she realizes the Israelites are going to come in, they're going to destroy my people, they're going to take the land, I'm going to die and, and, and she protected the spies and, and in time trusted in the Lord. Nicodemus' situation was completely different. He was, he was of the religious elite in Israel, um, and yet he needed to believe on the Lord as well. When you're desperate, faith in God is the only answer, no matter what the desperation is. We're going to see lots of different situations. We're going to see Rahab the harlot. We're going to see Nicodemus the religious man. We're going to see Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego who might have lost their lives from the, for the Lord. We're going to see a man bring his son uh, to, to be healed. And so it was a physical uh, family uh, thing as well. Whatever the desperate need is, the answer is a, a faith, a genuine faith in, in, in God. Not faith to manipulate God to give me what I want. Faith in God even when I don't get what I think I need. Teens who went to camp or didn't go to camp because we have some of those here too, or adults that are here. Jesus' word on the last day of the feast that we'll look at next week, John chapter 7, was this. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38. He stood up and cried out. He screamed out. He shouted out. It wasn't just a small little um, uh, uh, palestra, a word that he was given to the people, he was shouting it out. If anyone thinks, thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Don't be surprised, teenagers and adults and visitors or people that have been here for a long, long time. Don't be surprised. Don't be amazed. Jesus said, you must be born spiritually. You must be born again. And I'm glad you come to our church, but don't ever think that that's good enough to get you favor with God. Jesus is the way and the only way to eternal life. Teenagers, I, I know you heard that. 
And it's good that you hear it again. And I know different ones are in different places in their journey with the Lord. You must be born again. And, and, and it's God working in your heart and you responding to his word in absolute obedience. It's true for you and it's true for everyone here. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you. And I pray that the enthusiasm of a group of teenagers would grip our heart and then that the truth of the Spirit, uh, the truth of the Word of God and the Spirit using it would drive home the truth of the necessity that I must be born again. I pray that everybody in this place would even say those words to themselves. I must be born again. And there isn't any other way to peace with you. There isn't any other way of forgiveness or redemption or any of the words that are described um, to uh, describe our salvation other than the person of Jesus Christ. Father, right now, while we're quiet, I pray that you would whisper that your spirit would bear witness with our spirit if we're sons of God. And if not, I pray that you would trouble us. Just like you troubled Nicodemus. Just like Jesus hit right where the need was. Doesn't matter about your religious devotion, Nicodemus. What matters is that you are born again. Father, use your word, not just today, but over time, to help us see exactly where we stand before holy God. I pray that the deception of the enemy, even our own hearts, would, would fail into insignificance in light of the truth of the word of God. Help us recognize we must be born again. That we believe in Jesus and it's a continual action, not something I did at one time. And we ask that you do that uh, for your glory and we are the beneficiaries of it as well. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.